Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives we're consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun if you're like us then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call each week on alternate routes we'll take a flashpoint in sports break down what actually happened then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused follow alternate routes on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus Money to go. We're talking pitching. And of course, when you talk about Nola, if you want to feel good, Philadelphia Phillies fan, even better than you already do, or if you want to understand why your team was interested in Aaron Nola, go back and listen to Ellen Adair on our podcast last week, The Case for Aaron Nola. Because you'll come away and say, oh man, either the Philly fans, super happy he's back, or the teams that were interested in him, man, I wish you had him. There is absolutely a case for Aaron Nola and good for the Philadelphia Phillies for striking early, striking definitively. They certainly did both those things. Now comes the rest of the conversation. Now comes the rest of the free agent pitchers. Now comes the conversation and the excitement heading into the winter meetings, which is two weeks away, two weeks away. Two weeks away. So when it comes to breaking down what teams might be looking for, when it comes to breaking down what it looks like when you make a trade for a pitcher, what teams actually prioritize when they look to get pitching in trades or free agency, and also when it comes to what the Japanese pitchers are facing and how you should view the Japanese pitchers coming over, guys like Yamamoto, there's no better person to talk to than our old friend Brian Bannister. Senior, advise, senior pitching advisor for the Chicago White Sox now, was with the Giants, before that with the Red Sox. You aren't going to find anyone in baseball who takes a deeper dive into pitching. You aren't going to find anyone in baseball who tries to find what the evolution of baseball pitching is going to be like. You aren't going to find anybody in baseball who knows the what's what when it comes to all things pitching than Brian Bannister, and that's why we love having him on, and he didn't disappoint this time around. We talk about pitches, we talk about, like we said, the the positives and negatives and the challenges and the pluses when it comes to securing Japanese pitchers. We talk about the art of the trade, which they just made, the Chicago White Sox just made one, and he's going to take you behind the scenes of that. And we also talk about a guy who's in the news Andrew Bailey, Andrew Bailey probably going to become or is going to become the pitching coach of the Boston Red Sox. 
And he also worked with Bannister with the Giants. And they had a very, very good relationship. As he said, one of his favorite people in baseball. So anybody who wants to get to know Andrew Bailey a little bit more, this is a podcast you're going to want to listen to. It's just a good one. He's always great. He's always insightful. And he's also, he doesn't hold back, man. Like, that's the great thing is that it's just a couple guys talking. Just a couple guys talking about the great game of baseball and the art of pitching. All right, here you go. Remember, also, at BB isn't boring. At BB isn't boring. Twitter accounts, Instagram account. Please go rate, review, subscribe. Let me repeat that. Rate, review, subscribe. Rate, review, subscribe. At BB isn't boring. Also, fanduel.com slash boring. Win free money on top of free money on top of free money while having a good time all the live long day. All right, here you go. Here's Brian Bannister. All right, one of our absolute favorites, Brian Bannister. Because last time we talked to you, Brian, you were with another team, but I guess that happens. We do that a lot. We do that a lot. We did it. We do it with the godfather, the inventor of baseballs and boring Joe Kelly. We can do it with you. You're part of the family, but so good to see you. What's going on? No, great to see you too. Yeah, we're all free agents uh, to some extent. So uh, you, you end up jumping organizations, but uh, it's a small family in the baseball world and you're always surrounded by friends. Well, all right. So there's a lot I want to get to because because one of the things that I just mentioned in another podcast was uh, I keep referencing you. You shouldn't copyright or trademark some of the things that you say because I steal them all the time. I remember the last time you were on, we were talking about splitters, split finger fastballs, and you were talking about how it's one of the most underused pitches or or teams are a little bit paranoid because of injuries where like there's been no proof of that. Um and I don't know, I don't know how I, what player, what free agent pitcher I could have ever had thought of when I was talking about that. But um, I guess first thing, I like, it, since we last talked, which was during spring training, has that changed at all? Has has that changed? I know this wasn't how I was going to start with this whole, like, hey, give me the split finger take, but it's on top of mine. Has that changed at all? It hasn't changed at all. You know, we have a joke. We, we just call it splitter season. And uh, all, all the teams and all the coaches that are scared of splitters, we'll, we'll take all the pitchers that can throw splitters all day long. Uh, it's still the most underutilized pitch. It's still the most effective pitch. And uh, I love that combination. So you're, you're out there looking for those pitchers. Uh, a lot of them tend to be the Japanese pitchers where they have no fear of the pitch. And it's a big part of their baseball culture. Uh, and they have the anatomy to really throw it. Uh, and so, you know, you see a lot of good pitchers come over and dominate with the split finger and the Kevin Gosmans of the world uh, who aren't afraid to throw it go out and just crush the league. Uh, and so it's – I'm a big fan. I always will be. So you, you talk about sort of the, the Japanese pitchers using it a lot. Um, I don't know how much experience you've had with the – obviously they throw it a lot over there, but the ball changes – and and we've seen examples of adjustments and and not being able to adjust. How how much of a big a, a difference is that? Obviously, we had Senga. Senga is a good example of this, right? Um, how much of an uh, of an adjustment when you have a pitch that's so prevalent somewhere, but then you take then you change what you, the equipment that you have to use that pitch is that overstating it or is that a very real challenge? You know, I went out to to dinner with Senga last year, and we were trying to recruit him to San Francisco, and. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted him because of the ghost fork, and I actually think the splitter gets better coming from Japan over the U.S. because, to me, to me the ball is a little little bigger, 
uh, it's very, very slight, uh, but I think it actually enhances the split finger because your fingers are almost a tick wider, uh, which which accentuates all the characteristics of the pitch. So I think I think the Japanese pitchers actually have an advantage going to the U.S. ball uh, versus the other way around. That that concept comes up every time you're talking about a Japanese pitcher, uh, but I think it's actually an enhancer as opposed to something that that takes away from their skill set. So so when you're sitting across the table at Chili's. In San Francisco or whatever it is with Senga, like when you say that to him, does does did you get surprise? I mean, or relief, or because I, I, if I was a Japanese pitcher coming over, I mean, that was what that would be one of the things I would like love to hear, right? Yeah, and all the Japanese pitchers, there, there's a sneaky underground driveline culture. They do a good job with the Japanese pitchers. Uh, they don't really broadcast over there that they're working with driveline, uh, but a lot of them do, and so they get exposure to the U.S. baseball. Uh, and so I think they already kind of know how it's going to come off their fingers. Um, but in somebody like Sanga's case, you know, you see it come over and uh, like other Japanese pitchers before him and, and it just dominates uh, it, and it stays a really good pitch and potentially even gets better because there's just so much less um, frequency with, with the U.S. hitters as far as seeing it. It's not something that's taught in, in younger U.S. baseball, amateur baseball. And so I think just the inability to recreate the pitch with pitching machines, et cetera, just makes it so much better once they get over here. Again, not the road that I was going down, but this is how our conversations usually end up. We go to one to the one to the one. Um, So Senga adjusted his game a little bit since he came over. And watching him, obviously, he didn't land with you guys with the Giants. um, But watching his game from a distance – what was your takeaway? Because he, where he landed was pretty good, man. Like when you finish in the Cy Young voting, you've had a pretty good year. What was your takeaway from from the guy that you recruited to the guy who ended up uh, pitching in September? Yeah, I think I, I was always a big fan of his, and I, I'm a big fan of a lot of the Japanese pitchers and their style. And you see them dominating the World Baseball Classic, and they just bring a unique skill set to the table between the mobility and the grace at which they move in their mechanics, unique styles. They have pauses and hitches in their deliveries. You know, they throw the split finger. Some of them throw five to seven pitches, which is a bigger arsenal than a lot of U.S. pitchers. Uh, and so I, I thought he did great. Uh, probably my favorite memory uh, of Senga is that uh, he's extremely health conscious. And so it doesn't drink alcohol. And so we had this uh, three-hour-plus dinner with his agent, Joel Wolf down in uh, Redondo Beach. And the amazing thing was, I've never seen so much water consumed in one meal. We had, you know, it was Forrest Gump style. I mean, people were using the restroom all night long because <laughs> everybody was very aware that he wasn't drinking alcohol. So we were just crushing bottles of water and <laughs> nobody could stay at the table for more than 20 minutes. So it was just this endless parade to the restroom. But uh, that it just proved to me like how dedicated he was to his craft to his health, to his physicality. He was going to driveline. He was determined to come over and be a really, really elite major league pitcher. Uh, so kudos to him. And uh, he's he's a fun one to watch. When you, when you watch, we go back to the WBC to see these guys. And I would imagine you watched it pretty intently because, again, you're familiar with it. Um, what can we take away from that? So, you know, I was, Brian, I was having this conversation and, and, you know, this is what we do, right? We don't know these guys. So we go on YouTube and, oh, my goodness, look at it. He struck out Mike Trout. Or, but we also have to remember it's March. We also have to remember it's a small sample size. 
But is there anything we could take away from sort of that glimpse in time, you think, from the pitcher's perspective? I think it shows what they're capable of in a playoff-type atmosphere where the, the sample size is smaller. And, you know, me having pitched for Team USA against Cuba and the international sphere, so, some teams and some pitchers are just built for that environment. And I think a lot of those guys rise to the occasion. And because they throw unique arsenals and unique pitches, uh, I think what they bring to the table actually gets better in the postseason. And I think that's part of what you see in the World Baseball Classic. Whereas I think some of the U.S. players struggle with it a little bit more because they benefit from either a long major league season or a seven-game series. Whereas when it's sudden-death baseball, uh, different elements and different things play up. And kind of that unfamiliarity with what with how they pitch and the types of pitches they throw, I think, I think benefits the Japanese team. Uh, but it also shows you what they could do for a major league team in the postseason. I'm going to tell you, I promise you, Brian, I did not go into this wanting to, to ask you about Japanese pitchers. I promise <laughs> you. But I'm going to ask one more question. Well, so because you get you again, you have a perspective which I think is unique. And um, we talk about you talk about the split being okay, this is in favor of these guys coming over. And I've seen plenty going back to Daisuke coming over. I, I referenced, uh, I called the game uh, Sawamura, you know, his first game in, in Port Charlotte, and it was so uncomfortable, new ball, new mound, everything else. For you, like, what is the biggest adjustment for these guys who are coming over that you've experienced? I think they do a good job of being surrounded by support staff. It's usually an interpreter some kind of PT uh, massage assistant just to keep their body in check. Massages are a huge part of uh, the culture over there. If you don't get a massage after practice every day, it's it's almost an insult. Uh, but I think the hardest adjustment is in Japan, you pitch one day a week uh, and there's a, there's a standardized off day. So it, it really replicates the current minor league season where it's six days on one day off uh, the way that we've gone in the minor leagues. And so, when you start to go to a five-day workload, a five-day rotation, I think that's the biggest struggle they experience is that's not how it works over there. Uh, you tend to practice at their facility and and not actually travel with the team if you're a starting pitcher. And then you, you jump on the train and go meet up with the team the day before, make your start once a week. And then as soon as you're done, you take the train back to their practice facility and get a lot of work done on your body, work out, stretch, run, cardio, and get all that. And it, it's a much more relaxed cycle. Uh, so I think the, the travel, depending on what team you're on, uh, you know, unique things like, so Colorado is elevation, Chicago has the day game, Seattle has all the travel. Uh, so there, there's elements that they've never been exposed to that I think in combination with the five-day rotation can be much more physically demanding and, and they have to get a, accustomed to it. Okay, that's great. That's see, like I said, I mean, stuff. I had no idea about the train thing. I had no idea. It's I mean, pretty cool. It is cool. If you're hey, smoke them if you got them. I mean, like, come on, really? So, all right, natural segue. So, how do you end up with the White Sox? <laughs> I hadn't talked to you, um, and uh, and I'm and I'm super happy. Like, I'm super happy for you um, that. I know that your family has some history there and, and no, I get to know some of the people there. 
um, through uh, Godfather Joe Kelly when he was his time was there. So I, I'm just happy that you landed there. That another uh, familiar, friendly face uh, with, with the White Sox. But how did you end up there? No, I appreciate that. And I did grow up in, in on the South Side. So my dad pitched there starting in 1983 through 1987. Was on some pretty famous teams. The winning ugly 1983 team. Uh, so he's got a lot of history in the town. And I spent my childhood summers in Chicago, uh, southwest of the city, and, and growing up in the old Comiskey Park right across the street from the current guaranteed rate field. Uh, so I definitely had personal history there. Um, when Chris Getz, my teammate with the Royals, got the GM job in September when they removed uh, Rick Hahn, uh, he just reached out. He said, I, hey, I was going to call uh, after the season's over like everybody else does, but he called and asked for permission and and the Giants granted it. I was in the last year of my contract with the Giants. Uh, so I started that interview process. Um, and then, you know, Gene Watson, who had been the scout that had traded for me with the Royals from the Mets uh, back in 2007. It's how I got to Kansas City. Uh, he's the pro scouting director. Uh, Ethan Katz, the pitching coach. Uh, I worked alongside him in San Francisco as one of the pitching coaches in 2020. Uh, Tony LaRusso was still there. He had battled cancer over the last year, uh, but he lives a mile down the road from me in my hometown here in California. And I had worked alongside him in Boston when we won the World Series in 2018. So I just looked at the whole situation. I was like, I already know everybody. Um, it was kind of like a homecoming and they were willing to work with my schedule. Uh, my daughter's in high school. So they, you know, I, I flipped from a coach moniker to an advisor moniker. And so being able to work alongside Chris Getz in the GM role and kind of help set the direction of the organization after 101 losses. It's, it's always my belief you want to go into an organization after a really bad season uh, because you can only go up from there. And a lot of times it's really uh, kind of a fertile soil to, to come up with new ideas and get rid of the, the echo chamber and groupthink that had existed previously. And I think we're just open to a lot of new ideas. I went to Boston in 2014 uh, after that season was a bad season. I went to San Francisco after bad season. It's just a great place to get in at the ground floor and start to share new ideas and, and really get out in front of uh, the rest of the league and some new processes. And I think uh, the fans in Chicago are going to see a whole new brand of baseball from the White Sox. So – it's already started, you know, you made a trade and, you know, behind the curtain, we were talking about doing the podcast and said, oh, well, could we postpone it? There might be something going on, which, which I find fascinating, right? I not only, I didn't say anything. I didn't utter, hey, White Sox, I get something. No, no, we have lips are sealed. But, um, but now I'm, now I'm curious because you got back from the Braves. This is the Aaron Bummer trade. You get back from the Braves, a, a few pitchers, a few really, really intriguing pitchers. So I guess if we're going to dive into this, if we could, just about, about first of all, what what do you do in that situation? What do you do in that circumstance? And then I want to sort of get into what you see um, in, in these guys that you got back because that's a huge, huge part of this day and age of baseball. And I, we just saw like these guys who were going to maybe be non-tendered flip for a reliever. Um, the Red Sox just did it. Uh, so, but they see something in them. And same thing with the trade. Anyway, first off, how? What was your? What do you do during that time? 
Yeah. So, you know, a little peek behind the curtain. Um, we, we were potentially going to do this, this podcast and then, you know, that started happening. Uh, Alex Anthopoulos is great. He's extremely aggressive. Uh, he wheels and deals and, um, you know, I think, I think Chris gets as a first year GM is getting used to the, the personalities and the negotiating style of, of all the GMs in the league. So, uh, you know, we, we get hit up with an offer from Anthopoulos and, uh, you know, there's players on the table. Uh, we get together, we discuss the pros and cons, the different scenarios. Uh, when you have players of high value, typically top of the rotation starters, leverage relievers, everyday position players, uh, other teams are interested, especially when there's control involved. Um, so a lot of teams were interested in bummer. Um, and, you know, Anthopolis threw a, a combination of players at us with, um, you know, existing major league productions. You know, Soroka several years ago was one of the best pitchers in the league. Uh, he's a sinker baller, something that uh, I have a lot of familiar familiarity with and have been very successful with the Logan Webbs, Alex Cobbs of the world, Rick Porcello. Um, so that style I'm very confident in. Uh, it's it's really a bet on the bounce back in his health and production. Uh, Schuster is a former first rounder, uh, you know, more bottom end of the rotation, uh, but uh, with ability to go out there and throw innings, which the Chicago White Sox need in 2024. Um, and then, you know, two position players uh, with with upgraded defense, something that Chris gets uh, is really looking for. Um, and then we were able to kind of dig a little bit and and get another pitcher thrown into the trade. Uh, with with upside and so it's your it's your classic five for one for a reliever and uh, I, I think you know there, there's other things in the works obviously on the brave side of things because they're trying to clear space off their 40-man roster uh, and we looked at it as a way to uh, move the needle in the right direction from a wins perspective in 2024 while not uh, blocking anybody that would help us in 2025 and beyond uh, so you're really looking for upside with the position we're in in the standings uh, where we can build a team that can, can win consistently from 2025 and beyond coming off of a 101 loss season. But uh, we wanted good players with good makeup, good defense. Uh, we need to rebuild trust with pitchers around the league and agents that we can put a good defensive team on the field that can execute. Uh, we're, you know, we're looking for a good catcher behind the plate that can lead a staff um, and so really just upgrading every aspect of the Chicago White Sox. And that that trade was pretty unique in the quantity of players involved. Uh, but it checked a lot of boxes for 2024 while still allowing us to shoot for ceiling in 2025 and beyond. That's interesting you mentioned about regaining the trust of – because, you know, like anytime you obviously get into free agency, you have to sell the sales job. I said that to Craig Breslow. He's, he didn't like that term, but – We'll get past it. Um, but, but you know, you have to convince – and people. I don't think people think about that, where the pitcher has to look good. It's sort of like a quarterback. You know, what receivers do you have? What offensive line do you have? Um, so when you go into this, when you go to this offseason, you're coming in from a, mainly as a pitcher perspective, but that's, but that's the whole package, right? I mean, that's probably a big – when you sat down with Chris, you said, okay, you know, we got to rebuild this pitching. We got to get pitchers, but in order to do this, we need the whole ball of wax, right? Yeah, you know, your pitching staff's dependent on your catcher. He's your game calling, your sequencing, your framing until we eventually get to the automatic zone. Uh, your defense is just uh, converting balls and in play into outs. Uh, so you can come in as a pretty good pitcher 
you know, there are a lot of comments thrown out uh, on the pitchers who left the White Sox uh, in the second half of last year that were not positive, not favorable. And, and this new front office de- is determined to uh, change that culture and change that perception. So you have to get the catcher right. You got to get the defense right. You got to get the game calling right. Uh, and then you can bring in pitchers that are confident that the coaches are knowledgeable. They have the experience and the credibility to continue to make them play better from a player development perspective. Uh, but if you're weak in any of those areas that is really uh, run prevention and under that umbrella, uh, your, your pitchers are going to underperform and it's going to affect their, their salaries and uh, their production. And so they're very sensitive to that. And the agents are very aware. Uh, so you got to fix all of it. And, and that's what we're determined to do. When, and when you were throwing around the names, all I can think of was a scene in Moneyball, Brian is like, and what's a, who, who do we, let's get one more. Who do we got? Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Get him. Get him. Uh, so I don't know if that's what you were like, but you have some intriguing guys. You mentioned them, right? The, and so if you can just maybe with Sirocco or, or any of these other guys, anything that sort of for you, you know, the in, behind the curtain, behind the curtain, inside the like, this is what I really like about this guy that maybe we can tap into. Give me something from any of these guys that, for you, you're most excited about. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, with Soraka, uh, he has the capability, and we talked about it a little bit in the past, you know, to kind of get into that unique ball physics where the seams on the baseball, you know, a la Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin back in the day, but uh, more like Brandon Webb, Logan Webb, Kyle Hendricks. Uh, he's got that capability. And uh, it's something I like tapping into. It's one of my favorite aspects of pitching where you get later and better movement on the ball. Uh, only certain pitchers are capable of doing it. So you have to both identify that from a scouting analytical perspective, but you have to go in and make sure the pitcher understands it and that you coach them up where not only can you create the effect, but you have to be able to maintain it throughout the duration of a season because pitchers go in and out of calibration, uh, just like your car alignment does. It starts drifting the left. It starts drifting the right. And you have to keep it calibrated. Uh, otherwise, that little seam that's on the edge of the baseball that creates all that awesome late movement, uh, it gets out of whack and all of a sudden it doesn't happen and they become very hittable. Uh, so Rick Porcello did that in 2016. Uh, the next year goes out and loses se- uh, 17 games. That's exactly what happened. Uh, we just lost that little seam on the baseball and we didn't have the technology back then to really understand what was happening. Uh, so for me, it was trial by fire. I was like, what is going on? But I started to get good at sinkers uh, working alongside Rick, going from Cy Young to tough year back to very productive year in 2018. And so I I had all these uh, very beneficial experiences in dealing with an elite sinker baller. And I was able to carry that into San Francisco and turn us in, help turn us into the top ground ball percentage staff in the league, along with the lowest walk rate staff. Uh, So we were fearless in pounding the zone because we knew we were getting that late movement and generating those ground balls. Uh, so you're just looking when you acquire people, you know, is this a guy capable of doing something like that? Um, when you're not talking about a, a four-seam power pitcher like a DeGrom or a Strider where it looks like they just blow away everyone with ease, you're looking for a guy that gets under barrels, keeps the ball on the ground. And to take advantage of that, you got to have the catcher that understands it. you got to have the defense that can field those ground balls. Is the same thing with Schuster? The same sort of what you want to dig in with him? You know, he's got a great changeup, and I think you're trying to leverage the changeup while uh, not giving up fastball damage. Uh, he's not a big spin guy, uh, so you're looking to strategically cut the ball, shape the ball, 
when hitters are least expecting it while also playing that north-south hard-soft dynamic. Um, so he's, he's a different genre of pitcher for me, but uh, a lot of nice upside. There's a reason he was a first-rounder. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with him. The, so what you were saying before kind of leads to another question I had, which is <clears throat> this, everyone's different, sure. But what is baseball heading into 2024? We we actually did this probably in spring training, baseball heading into 2023. But what is baseball in 2024? What are you looking for? Like, what are you um, – in other words, and I know it's not a universal thing. I get that. But it's no longer also, oh, well, we're looking for guys who throw 100. Well, you know, as we know, like almost, you know, <laughs> the entire league throws in the high 90s. What are you looking for? What 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 is baseball going to be looking for in two in 2024? Is it something as simple as we want the sweep? We want more guys who have the sweeper because that's what everyone's throwing. That's the most effective thing. Or maybe it's the next thing. What are what are people going to be looking for? Yeah, I've said this for a long time, and it's what I've uh, searched for for a long time, and that is the things we can't teach. Uh, the game itself. Now that we measure everything with the analytics. And the, the floor of the league is so much more, more knowledgeable on all these biomechanical concepts, the physics of the ball, the shapes, the movement, uh, how we sequence it, the usage. Everybody's pretty inundated with that. Uh, but you, it all boils down to there's things you can't teach that make pitchers good. And they're, they're more genetic, anatomical in nature. So when you see uh, Spencer Strider, Zach Wheeler, get that huge extension uh, and and their fastballs really play up or somebody's got that late movement because their wrist is put together on their forearm at a certain angle. And so they spin the ball uniquely from everybody else, or they have a weird hitch in their delivery, like a Clayton Kershaw. You're still looking for uniqueness and outliers and unicorn type pitchers with weird features because ultimately hitter hitting is a pattern recognition game. And it's, it's 3D perception of the baseball. You're trying to get your barrel to the spot in the zone where the baseball is going to be. And any unique characteristics of the pitcher uh, that throws off either that perception or that timing or that ability to predict what the next move is, what the next pitch is, uh, that's when the advantage stays with the pitcher. And so that's always what I'm looking for. We're, we're maximizing and optimizing everything we can teach pitchers, but there's still things that you can't teach that keep the best pitchers in the game, the most valuable pitchers in the game. So we had, we've had spirited debates in this podcast with players. Is a, is a sweeper a thing? So we had Richard Blyer on and he spent 15 minutes about like, we sit in the bullpen and we see it up on the scoreboard sweeper. We're like, it's a slider. It's a slider. Right. So as somewhat like there's, I'm going to say this, Brian. Whatever you say, that's what I'll do. If you want me to call it a sweeper, I will. If you want me to call it just more of a horizontal slider, I will. Whatever you want. What are we – is this a thing, the sweeper? You know, uh, when I had Tanner Houck, uh, when he was the first rounder for the Red Sox, um, he, he originally threw a curveball. And uh, we actually – it was actually my first real – um, immersion into sweepers and we switched them from a curveball to a sweeper. I remember that. Uh, yeah. And it was just because we were trying to create a mirror image of Chris Sale. That was kind of the thought process is he's a righty. You know, you throw their videos up side by side and they look very similar in how they move and they're both hypermobile, you know, lean athletes. Um, and so 
And that was the first time I remember distinctly teaching a sweeper. And, you know, you get into all these nuanced sliders and uh, even the internal system we built in Boston, we tried to tease out all the different types of sliders and call them different subtypes of pitches. So you're not wrong. It's it's in the slider umbrella of pitches, the, the slider genre. Um, but I remember Tom Tango, who's with MLB, uh, he, he was pinging me and he's just like, what do we call this thing? And I just called it a sweeper because I needed to tell the pitchers this is a different pitch than a gyro slider, than a curveball, than a cutter, than a deep cutter, uh, all these different things we do. And so I think the difference is a, a slider spins like a football. It spins like a bullet. It's got the gyro spin on it. And then a sweeper, uh, it's usually thrown by a lower slot uh, guy or a pitcher who drops the slot a little bit. And the ball is actually tilted backwards. Uh, so it spins like a curveball uh, with a little reverse tilt on it. So to me, it is a different pitch. Um, you know, a gyro slider can break at most about seven inches horizontally, whereas these sweepers can get up, you know, the, the Romos of the world, I've seen 24, 25 inches when they throw it right and get the seams involved. Um, so, yes, it's a different type of pitch. It's more of a sideways curveball, uh, but it does have a unique uh, combination of tilt and spin on it. Um, so I'm comfortable calling it a sweeper, even though I know that frustrates the Well, traditional you invented list. it. Like, this is one of my takeaways. You, We finally found a person who, like, who invented the term. There you go. Thank you. Like this, yeah, I feel like I feel like I just went to Egypt and, and uh, discovered like a, a tomb. Like th- you, <laughs> congratulations. You know, I, I didn't invent it. Uh, the Jeff Nelsons and David Cones of the world. No, but I'm talking forever. about the term. The term. I don't care because it's like you have this list. If you have the glossary, and this is another of my takeaways, is that the glossary of like I would love to see like like oh here's the one finger shit kicker. You know, it's. You know, like, yeah, so you got to name these things. Yeah, the the funny one going around right now, and uh, my friend Tyler Zombro down at Tread, uh, they're calling they're calling the pitch that Matt Barnes always threw. They're calling it the death ball now. Now we called it the palm forward spike. It was a very analytical pitch. It's like, what is it? Is it a curveball? Is it a slider? Nobody knows. It just is hard and it goes down. Um, so we call it a palm forward spike. Now they're calling it a death ball, which is a way cooler name. Oh, death um, ball, yeah. So, so I'm always willing to hand the baton if somebody comes up with a better name. So if we if we come up with a better name than a sweeper, you know, I'll I'll pass the hat and give it to them. It's you know, listen, everything's passed through t-shirts and palm four. What was it? Palm four? What? Palm forward spike. It's what palm Matt Barnes throws. Doesn't fit on the t-shirt like a death ball. <laughs> yes, de- death ball is way better. It doesn't. Um. This is again. I always try to find ways to segue. This is a terrible segue, but the uh, it's come up recently that we might be knocking down a few more seconds um, on the pitch clock. So we had on, uh, we've had on a couple pitchers talk about this. Uh, Matt Strom was the first one to come on and really like say, "Hey, you know, this is the the pitch clock." Because we all like as fans, we all like the pitch clock, but the pitch clock's going to lead to injuries. You know, pitchers aren't used to it, um, so forth and so on. I haven't had the time, effort, or uh, resources to dive into if that actually came to fruition. But having gone through the year from your perspective, which is pretty interesting and fascinating, what is your takeaway about the impact? We know the impact in time of game, and we know the impact of, of yes, players are adjusting. But for you, the impact it has had after one year of doing this is done with the pitch clock. 
you know, I think there's a slightly elevated injury risk to it all. And then the reason being, if you went to the gym and you normally take two minutes in between sets of lifting, and all of a sudden I said, you get 15 seconds, you know, you get through the first couple sets of lifting and then you start to get to your next machine and you start to be a little gassed. You'd be a little tired, uh, a little winded. And our, our pitchers were definitely saying that uh, by the fifth inning this past year. And so every pitcher, I think, had to deal with it in his own way, whether that was changing up his cardio routine, uh, lifting in more of a, a hit style uh, where they have less rest in between sets, uh, attacking the zone more in order to try to get uh, quicker outs. Because uh, in general, I think you saw pitchers really pound the zone this year uh, and really try to lower walk rates uh, at the expense of a little bit of strikeout. Just because if they could save a few pitchers, pitches here and there, uh, I think they felt better as the game went on. Uh, but you've seen any total innings from starting pitchers continue to go down, and the pitch clock is is not going to help that at all uh, because guys get tired. Uh, the third time through the order penalty gets magnified because they are a little bit more tired. Um, so I think the general consensus of everybody I've talked to from season ticket holders uh, to coaches to players is that the pitch clock was a success. Uh, people liked knowing when they were going to get out of a game uh, in combination with the extra inning rules and go to dinner or go to a bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it kind of put baseball uh, within a fixed time frame. And so for a lot of people, that was – a nice change for the traditionalists. I think they hated it and they hate it with a passion uh, because baseball was always the game without a clock. Um, I, th- I think it does keep the sport a little more competitive as far as uh, the attention span of the, of the current fan and the current generation. Pros and cons. I, d- I do think um, you're going to see a little more injury. You're going to see less innings by starting pitchers. Uh, so as we keep shortening the clock, uh, it makes the game more rapid fire. It takes away a little of the the stylistic stuff as, as a hitter approaches the box, the no mars, the big poppies. The, you don't get as much of the the flair and the and the fun and the individualization of of what that extra time allows. Um, but I think in trying to keep up with other sports, um, it was something that had to be done. And I think the general consensus is, is that was a positive, uh, even though we're going to have to keep reacting to the the shorter time clocks, especially if they keep knocking it down year over year. I got two more things. One is a pro call. You said the pros and the cons. Um, uh, the third time through the order thing, you mentioned that. There's, we can talk about this. I get it, the pros and the cons. One thing that, you know, as trying to be a smart person who watches baseball and probably isn't that smart, but it's it was one of the things my takeaway is I don't know how much – pitchers are expecting to throw a third time through the order so it's almost like when they get there and they're left in it's like oh you know i'm pitching the third time through the order am i full of hooey <laughs> is, it, is, is that a thing no it, it's a real thing and it's actually becoming a big problem on the pd side of things because there's different ways you can develop pitchers and one of the, the current trends is have your minor league pitchers throw less innings and then throw less pitches and then go eat, get good nutrition in them, and go lift. And that's a great strategy, uh, except I think pitchers, to some extent, if you never push them deep into the game, whether it's the third time through the order penalty, it's a fixed pitch limit uh, to go lift and get stronger and throw harder. However you're developing your pitchers, they get to the point 
they don't even expect to pitch uh, deep into a game, and it's not something they ever develop. They don't. They start to fail, and they're like, "Oh, they're just going to take me out of the game." Mm. And I think we have to get to the point where we have to let the pitchers fail a little bit, not to hurt their industry value, because you're always trying to manage that. You don't want their numbers on the minor league side to be terrible. Uh, but if they never fail, you'll run into games in the big leagues where your bullpen shot or somebody just has to gut it out the way you know Evaldi did back in t- the 2018 World Series and just step up and and pitch through fatigue. Uh, and so when you see a guy do that, it's almost rare nowadays. Uh, and we had some pitchers on our San Francisco staff this past year in Logan Webb, DeScafani, Alex Cobb that were capable of throwing really efficient innings because uh, they could generate a lot of the ground balls and they pounded the strike zone. Uh, and so a lot of times you get to that third time through the order and the numbers say, well, we should pull them. Uh, but you end up leaving them in. And especially if they're a pro guy that knows how to handle fatigue a little bit. Uh, it, it, it's actually kind of unusual and it's really fun to see a pitcher go into the eighth or ninth inning nowadays because nobody does it. And so you kind of have to fight the analytics a little bit and let your pitchers get that experience, even if they are going to fail once in a while, because there might come a time in a season or in the postseason where you have to do it. And if they don't know how to do it, they're going to fail and you need to just give them that experience. I feel better about myself because I feel <laughs> It's good. I, that's the first time I, I've got some sort of affirmation on that. You know, like, so anyway, um, last thing is uh, a guy who you worked with in San Francisco, Andrew Bailey's in the news. I know Andrew Bailey from hurting his lat doing vertical jump tests into the 2012 spring training um, for some reason. I don't know, Brian, why they did it. The, I, I understand doing physical fitness tests, but. I don't know when Andrew Bailey would have never needed to, to know his vertical jump and he hurt his lap. So anyway, what can you tell me about him? Like, why, cause I don't, I know Andrew, like I know, him. I don't know him like as this guy who's a pitching coach. So what can you tell me about him? He's one of my favorite people in baseball. Uh, just a genuine human, uh, very playful and extroverted. Uh, but the thing that impresses me the most is the way that he leverages the strengths of other people, whether it's the medical department, the the strength and conditioning department, the analysts, uh, you know, the the roster management, the game management, uh, he knows how to go to people every single day, and he's a machine at it, uh, and get the most out of them, and really make them feel empowered and part of the process. So he's a great delegator. Uh, he's a high EQ guy. He can walk around with anybody and joke around and not take things too seriously, even though he is extremely serious about being the best in the league uh, as far as his pitching staff. Um, So he's a great leader. Uh, When he came to San Francisco, he had only been the video guy and the bullpen coach for the the Angels. Um, So I got paired with him, and uh, Craig Breslow, of all people, had actually recommended him to the San Francisco Giants for the pitching coach role, and I'm so glad that he was the one hired uh, it was great to be in the trenches with him for four years. You know, I'm a little more analytical, uh, technical by nature. Uh, we complemented each other very, very well. I brought what I had learned from Boston along with my style. And uh, just the combination of, of how we worked together along with Ethan Katz in 2020 and JP Martinez for the last three years was really powerful. And we did some really cool things with our pitching staff. We were always near the top of the league in, in most categories. Um, and what I think he's going to bring to the Red Sox is an ability to not be 
too technical or too analytical, uh, but have a great feel. Uh, I think he'll be able to unite all the departments because I know uh, the size of the departments scaled uh, greatly under Bloom, And I think he's going to be able to leverage all those skill sets uh, along with his great personality, great delegation, uh, work alongside Alex Cora because just like his Yankees interview, uh, Bailey could be a bench coach. He could perform very, very well in another role that's a little more classic if he got away from just the pure pitching stuff. But I think he he brings the qualities of a manager or bench coach to the pitching coach role, and everybody that works alongside him and underneath him is going to feel special and valued. Uh, and he's going to bring a lot of knowledge with what we did uh, with the San Francisco Giants pitchers to the table. And I think there were some elements that were missing with the Red Sox staff uh, the last couple of years, even though I have the utmost respect for Dave Bush, and I think he did it a great job um, and a lot of the people that are still there um, just, just from what they've shared with me, there's a couple things that I think uh, Andrew will, will step up a notch and, and really get people involved and get new concepts involved that I think will take the Red Sox pitching to the next level. So I think it's a great hire. The fact that, you know, Craig Breslow was in his wedding and they've been best friends forever. They've been teammates forever. Uh, that That's a great synergy to have. Because the the boss is going to have uh, you know a great existing friendship with the pitching coach, and the pitching is really uh, what needs to thrive in Boston to win a world championship. And so I think it was a great hire. I think he's going to get along great with AC and uh, and the rest of the staff. And I think Breslow, using what he learned in Chicago on the pitching side of things, he's very analytical himself. Uh, but I think it's going to. Andrew's going to be able to bring a lot of feel to the pitching uh, and really kind of uh, take everything that's there in Boston at Fenway and unite it and, and step up the pitching staff. Was there anything that he latched on in particular? I, I find it interesting. Like, I know that, you know, again, he has a good personality, and that's a big part of this, right, of delivering the information in a way. It wasn't that long ago he played. I couldn't believe he's still under 40. You know, it's like – that's a big part of it. But also, as you said, you, when you sat there and you were sort of, okay, this is, this is some, some information. This is a machine that we use. This is some, was there anything that, and, and then maybe there was a, a specific example of him manifesting that in a specific player. Was there anything jumped to mind in that respect? You know, coming from Anaheim where uh, they were really big on forcing fastballs, uh, adding vert to fastballs, things like that. I think in San Francisco, we developed our own style. We, we kind of, when we came in, the only pitchers that were available uh, were the sinker ballers. And so we went out and got all the sinker ballers. And that was something just me having worked with Rick Porcello and a couple guys in Boston. We were comfortable with that type of pitcher. And most of the league had shifted to power forcing guys. So that was just what was cheap and available. And I think it ended up becoming what we were known for over the last four years. Uh, were the sinker guys, the high ground ball percentage, the the high innings pitch guy. You know, we were, we were able to make Kevin Gosman's splitter better. So I think what you'll see from Bailey that um, he latched onto is is the ability to handle other styles of pitching that aren't just your classic power four seam guys. Uh, you know, we had Tyler Rogers, the Submariner. I had uh, Ziggler in Boston. You know, Stephen Wright in Boston. We talked about all these other ways to pitch successfully. Uh, and it just doesn't have to be power and velo. Uh, you can still throw a lot of strikes, uh, walk very few guys, keep the ball in the ballpark, uh, and and take average pitchers and make them better 
when they learn how to leverage all those attributes of themselves. So I think you're going to see a lot more creativity, uh, his ability to handle a wide variety of pitchers, and it's going to give the Red Sox front office and the analysts there uh, a lot more opportunity and power in acquiring a lot of different styles of pitchers. It'll make the staff more diverse. They'll be able to handle you know, the tough AL East and, and the different uh, platoon splits and, and types of hitters that you're going to get and face on a regular basis in that division. Uh, and he's really going to empower uh, everybody involved in the pitching process. Well, he, this, he is also the perfect example how far we have come in terms of analyzing and diagnosing because I remember this specifically, Brian, is he had a thumb injury. I believe it was 2012, 2012 right? They found out that his thumb had been placed, I forget exactly how it was placed, from a baseball card. Like, this was putting stress on his thumb from a baseball card. <laughs> oh my, I think Mike I think he tucked I think he tucked his thumb. He tucked his thumb. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was it was like I remember I think Mike Reinhold was there and uh and it was like, yes, like that's that's <laughs> think about that. You I don't know I don't know how fast you would have uh, had uh, identified that with all the contraptions you have now. But probably probably you didn't have to lean on a baseball card, right? So yeah. That's the speed equivalent of a, of a carrier pigeon nowadays. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, listen, another behind the scenes. You've been doing this while your family's doing skee-ball and Dave and Buster, so I appreciate this. Go in there, reap the rewards of all those tickets that they won and and get whatever prize. But our prize is you coming to the podcast. I appreciate it, man. No, always great to be here. You do a great job. I'm a huge fan of yours. And uh, enjoy Bailey in Boston. It's going to be fun.